Thank you. Well, it's good to be back. Good to be back in Australia. Good to be back at Montmorency. Uh, yeah, we spent 10 years in the wilderness, <laughs> the United States of America, and, um, and it is good to be back in our home country. Uh, we also spent a lot of time all over the world. I was travelling about 200,000 kilometres a year and uh, saw most of the world and uh, spent a lot of time with people in their indigenous context. Uh, so whenever I went anywhere, I didn't usually stay in hotels and be in the tourist areas. I was often in places where people lived and in most cases when you're a believer over in, uh, in other parts of the world, you're not the most wealthy people in the world. So I ended up eating all kinds of odd things and sleeping in all kinds of odd situations. But it was a wonderful experience because we experienced the fellowship of uh, being part of the worldwide family and, and experiencing that um, is very, very special. So we, we believe we've had a very privileged and special life and we've got uh, all that years of experience about what it means to be part of the kingdom to share here back in Australia, we're very committed to investing in local churches, as Jenny said. We feel that was what we were called to and we were exploring what did God want us to do next. Um, he certainly directed us very strongly um, and, and very clearly to invest in local church. And that's what we're trying to do in CVAC, uh, in the Christian Community Churches, is invest in local church and see the church grow. And I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about growing the kingdom. I want to talk about living the kingdom. And I want to tell you a story about Julie. So, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's take time back to when Jenny was referring to uh, our time at Notting Hill Community Church. I was young, still in our 20s. Uh, we just got back from uh, living in the Aboriginal community for four years. I did some more study. I completed a bachelor's degree and started a master's program as well as uh, postgraduate studies and other stuff so I sort of tried to make the most of the year um, that I took out to do that study and we landed at Nighting Hill and uh, one of the first things I did was I didn't know what it meant to be a pastor so I thought well I've got to go out and meet the community so I went and visited every house in our whole community. I knocked on the door and said hi I'm David from the local church down the road can I come in and have a chat to you and in those days they didn't call the police um, they actually let you come in and so I'd go in and sit down uh, with these people and I'd say, say two things to them. First of all I'd say I believe the local church exists to serve you and then I'd ask them a question what can we do to serve you? And because of the demographic of the time there was a lot of young uh, well actually families with teenage kids and I consistently heard from these parents if you want to help us help our kids can you do something down the local high school it's in a real mess we know there's drugs in there um, you know, my daughter just doesn't have any friends. Can you do something about that? My son's actually in a gang. You know, stuff. <coughs> some of it wasn't extreme, <coughs> but um, I said, if you want to help us, help our kids. So I came back to the church and we talked about that with the leadership and said, well, we really need to have a very strong youth focus here. And I got with the young people uh, who were in the church. There was only about 15, 20 of them. And I said, look, you know, I, I don't know how to reach your friends. I'm not connected to them yet. I'm going to try and get to the school. But you know what? This has to be your ministry and I want to empower you to do that, to reach your friends. So uh, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be your advocate, your champion, but we're giving you the responsibility of doing this ministry. So you tell us what you want to do and then we'll see if we can make it happen. Uh, well, first of all, I said, well, we can't invite our friends here to the church. are not going to come to a church. 
Um, so they come up with a whole lot of really actually outrageous wild ideas and, and we worked through those and we did most of them. And one of the ideas was to have a live band coffee shop. So there was a community hall up the wall, they said, up, the, up the road, they said everybody knows where that community hall is um, and we can do something there that would, you know, that these kids would, uh, our friends would come to, uh, that'd be great. So they came up with this idea of a live band coffee shop. Now, we went out and raised some money and we went and bought equipment. Now, I took some of the young people along with me to buy the equipment and, of course, we couldn't get the little speakers. We had to get the speakers that took three people to lift. <laughs> and in those days, you know, live bands were just full front of house, you know, just in your face. Um, fantastic, you know. I used to play, I used to play a, uh, in a band and I had this quad box and, you know, I'd stand in front of it and... And, and, uh, and you know, you didn't have any... Anybody on a control desk at the back stopping you from turning it up full pelt. <laughs> it was fantastic. So we got all these big speakers and we got tables and we had candles and in and, uh, and those days it was cool to have candles and tables. Now it would be really corny but we did that and uh, advertised it in the school. I was actually getting involved in local school and everybody was telling their friends about it and I thought I wonder how this is going to be. Um, wonder what's going to happen and I turn up there, you know, we, we got it all set up I went home, had dinner, came back and there was kids everywhere there was teenagers everywhere hundreds of them now, we'd gone out and got, found the, the really, uh, you know, the best Christian band we could find because it's a live band coffee shop and we've actually found a, a, a bunch of Christians who were playing in the local pubs who these kids knew fantastic so we got them in they really knew how to play. They were good. Um, so we thought, okay. And, and that attracted a lot of these kids as well. So, you know, I go inside, full of young people. The band starts up. And it was like that music that rearranges your organs. <laughs> and, you know, as I said, no control. They got it up, you know, and they're doing their pub band thing. And um, I'm trying to meet these kids. So I'd go up and I'd say, Hi, my name's David. And they go, What? <laughs> uh, my name's David. Huh? You know, and so we're like yelling in each other's ears and they finally got that my name was David and I had to find out what their name was. So, you know, we're yelling at each other like this and I went on for about half an hour and I reckon I found out the names of a few people and that was about all I got and I'm thinking, this is an absolute disaster. What a waste of time. We've done all this and this. And I, how am I going to ever meet these kids? I can't even talk to them. I can't have a conversation with them. <clears throat> how is this going to work? So I thought, well, I'll, I'm going to go outside and, uh, you know, I'm trying to get some hearing back. And, um, and I go outside and there's as many kids outside, probably more kids outside than there were inside. And they're standing around smoking and having a chat. And so I just go up to them and I start talking to them. I'm having a conversation without yelling at them. And I'm... And I meet this girl, Julie. She was off to the side. I thought, oh, I always would like to meet the lonely one. So I went and talked to Julie and got to know a little bit about her. And I met all these other kids. And, and, I, and we really got into some great conversations. And I go, oh, this is fantastic. I get it now. You go inside to get your organs rearranged. And then you come outside to get them back to where they're meant to be. And you, while you're doing that, you chat and you, you breathe, you know, you're a sort of secondhand smoker. And, and it's just fantastic. And I was getting to know all these kids. And, and it was really working well. Well, it came time to finish and they all went home and I look over and here's Julie still there. It was after midnight. We were packing the trailer with all this equipment. 
And Julie's sitting there on the edge of the car park gutter. So I go over to Julie, I sit down beside her, I say, hey Julie, you know, look, we're packing up, we're going home, you best get back home. She said, I can't go home. I said, why? She said, my dad gets drunk on the weekend and he beats me up. If I go home, he'll injure me. He doesn't want me around on the weekends. Oh. So, I'm confronted with this. Now, okay, so this was not meant to be how it's meant to work, right? So, what was meant to happen is that, that we, we bust it, you know, we, we, we bust ourselves, we put everything into it, we get it, we make this thing happen, we play the game, we put it all in there, and I take the kids home, and I go home, and I go to sleep, I wake up the next day after sleeping in, try and recover, and then, you know, get ready for church on Sunday. That's how it's meant to work. And here's this Julie, and she's like the fly in the ointment. She's something that, that I didn't anticipate. And I'm thinking, I know what I meant to do, but I'm not going to, I don't want to. I'm too tired. I, I just can't handle this. But that very morning, I'd read these verses in James chapter 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accomplished by action, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. I'd read those words that morning and I remember them and they were being beaten into my heart by the Holy Spirit and so I said, Julie, reluctantly, Julie, um, would you like to come home? We'll, we'll find somewhere for you to sleep. We can, we've got a blow-up mattress. We can put it on the floor. You, you can sleep at our place tonight. Would that be okay? And the re- look of relief on her face. It was just palpable. So, so I put her in the car with all the other kids and I drove around and dropped them all off and took her home. Woke up Jenny and said, Hey Jenny, we've got a guest tonight. Julie, here she is. Brother, <laughs> let's blow up the mattress. We'll put it there. And, and Julie stayed with us for quite some time. And we found some other accommodation for her. And she became a believer. And she became part of our church. Now we went on to see a whole lot. We got a double-decker bus from London and set that up as a coffee shop because we would take that to where the kids were. They came up with some great ideas and we saw actually hundreds of kids come to Jesus um, by empowering young people. That's another story. But that night, Julie encountered the kingdom of God. That night. Julie needed the kingdom and, and she needed somebody to bring the kingdom to her and, and I reluctantly did it. But she encountered the kingdom of God and it taught me a lot about what the kingdom truly is all about. It needs to invade our life but it also needs to invade the lives of others and to meet them at their point of need. We just, uh, we said the Lord's Prayer and I just want to look at that and put the kingdom into the context of the Lord's Prayer. And when we look at the Lord's Prayer, uh, what, what is the context of, of that prayer being given to the disciples? The disciples came along to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Well, I don't think that Jesus only taught them how to pray. He actually told them what to pray for. See, if we were going to have a conversation with Jesus and, and we had an opportunity, as the disciples did, to have a conversation with Jesus and we said, Look, Jesus, we just want to know what we should pray for when we're praying, what should we pray for? You tell us that we should pray, what should we pray for? Well, this was that conversation. 
Because Jesus said, well, first of all, acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Acknowledge God is in heaven, the sovereignty of God. God's in charge. And thank him for being in charge. Do that first. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's, it's just a way to acknowledge God's sovereignty and say, you're in charge. But what was the next thing he asked us to pray? Pray about. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe that this prayer is an imperative to us as followers of Jesus. You said, Lord Jesus, when we pray, what should we be praying about? Then surely if he tells you what you would be meant to be praying about, that's what he wants to see happen. And I believe this is an incredibly strong imperative. And every time we say this prayer together, let's think about what it's saying to us. This is what I want you to live. So if that's the case, and we know that's the case because there's a whole lot more in, in, uh, in the Gospels about Jesus talking about the kingdom. He talked about the kingdom all the time. The kingdom is near. I've come to bring the kingdom. He talked about the kingdom, kingdom, kingdom all the way through. And people asked him, how can I be part of that kingdom? So it is about the kingdom. And what does it mean for the kingdom to come? And what does it mean for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? What does it mean? What does it look like? Or what should it look like if God's will or the kingdom comes in our life, in us? What should, that, what should we look like? What should that look like? And what should it look like if the kingdom comes in this church? What should we see? What should this church look like if the kingdom came here and God's will was done here? And what would it look like or what should it look like or what should we see in the world where the kingdom interfaces the world? Where the kingdom is impacting the world, what should we be seeing? What should be there that makes it distinctive, that, that honours Jesus, that celebrates the sovereignty of God? What should we be seeing if that's happening? And I believe we can discover that by looking at the life of Jesus because Jesus said, I've come to bring the kingdom. And so if we track the life of Jesus, then surely we're going to get an idea of what should happen, what should be happening when the kingdom comes. I want to tell you a story about somebody else. I've got to aim this up here apparently. Oh, there you go. About this young man. And uh, this young guy, at the age of 17, was uh, walking down the streets of London and he found this little booklet and he got it out and he opened up and he started going through it. And, and what did he find? He found the story of, about how to become a follower of Jesus, about how to become a Christian. And he read about Jesus and he read about what you needed to do and he said, oh, I need to do that. So he gave his life to Jesus, now, without intervention of any human person but the Holy Spirit. So he thought, all right, well now I've done that, I better find out more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. So he went along to a local church and at the time he saw this advertising so he went there because that was, you know, it was somewhere where he thought he might find out about Jesus. And the person who happened to be speaking was George Muller who was one of the founders of the Brethren Movement and was a fantastic, revolutionary, kingdom-oriented guy. And so... He's there listening to what George Muller says. Now, George Muller gets up and he says, well, you know, I'm doing as much as I can. I've got these orphanages, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I'm trying to reach these people, and I'm involved in mission. But there's all these people, millions of people in China that need to know about Jesus, and they don't know, and they're not going to find out unless somebody goes and tells them. And Hudson Taylor, who's been a Christian for I don't know how long, a few weeks, comes up, up, up to George Muller, and, and with the healthy naivety of youth, says... George, don't worry about that, I've got that covered. I'll go over there and tell all those people about Jesus. I mean, that's what he said, don't worry about it. You know, it, it, it's wonderful when young people get a vision and they come out and they say impossible things. And, and, you know, and often, well, I've experienced it in Youth for Christ, 
uh, where we started empowering young people and said, we know God's giving you dreams and visions, we want to hear those. Uh, and we did. And we saw, we saw in a 10-year period um, our influence grow enormously because we empowered these young people. And they said, well, you know, we're going to go over here, we're going to go into this country and we're going to tell all these people about Jesus. And we said, well, you can't. You're not even allowed to go into that country. Uh, and they go. And so we grew from the time we started in, in this international leadership uh, role, we were in 82 nations. End of last year, we were in 140 nations. Now, that is just absolutely outrageous. But these young people were going in Afghanistan, into northwestern China, into Mongolia, into Azerbaijan, I mean, all these names of the places where you're not meant to go. Or they were already in there and they came and said, we want to reach people in here. How are we going to do that? Well, Hudson Taylor was just that sort of person. So George, being who he was, said, great, let's help you to do that. Fantastic, I'll, I'll be your champion. I'll actually be an advocate for you. And he was. But Hudson Taylor said, all right, well, I'm going to do that. So what do I need to do? First of all, I better learn Chinese. You know, I actually better go and learn Mandarin. So he went and learned Mandarin. And then he said, oh, I need to know the Bible. So he learned Hebrew, Greek and Latin and did, did a theology degree. And uh, then he said, I need to also help these people. So I better study medicine. So he did a medicine medical degree as well. And he finished that at the age of just at sort of age 21, 22, hopped on a boat, went over to China and thought he was going to reach all these people. Now, what he was told is you have to be part of a mission society. So he joined a mission society and he said, all right, what am I meant to do? So he did their training and they said, well, this is what you do. You go over there, you, you meet all these heathen pagan people, you tell them what it means to be a Christian and when they give their life to Jesus, then you get them to stop living like pagans and heathens. And one of the ways you do that is you get them to dress like this with a suit and tie and, and you know, that'll be good. Um, and we know, that you know that's, that's, we know they're Christian when they start doing that. And he said they gave him plans for building a church. You build a church with a steeple and a whole plans, you know, and you go and build a church and then you get these people to come to this church and then they do, here's the, here's the liturgy, here's what they're going to do and then you get them to uh, sing these hymns. You'll need to probably translate them but you should be teaching them English um, and when they, when they dress like us and they go to the church and everything, well, you've done it. You've converted these people to Christianity. They're no longer heathens and pagans. They've become Christians. So Hudson Taylor said, all right, off he went, tried to do that. And for two years, complete failure. Didn't, didn't get anywhere. Didn't reach anybody. Wasn't able to, to even start building a church because he had nobody to fill it. So he was thought, oh, I'm a failure. And then this big fire swept through the area he was in. He lost everything. He burned all his stuff. And then he got really, really sick. And so he went to some local people and he said, I need your help. And they took him in. They started caring for him. And while they were caring for him, they asked him, why on earth have you come here? Well, he didn't have any, you know, he just... He said, well, I came here to tell people about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they said, who's Jesus? And so he started talking to these people about Jesus and they said, well, can we be a follower of Jesus? And he said, sure. And so they started following Jesus and they started telling their friends and then he started meeting in homes and, and um, this is what he ended up looking like. <laughs> now, the Mission Society... Hadn't heard from him for quite a while, so they sent somebody over to check on Hudson Taylor to see what he was doing. And they were horrified. 
And they wrote this report on him and said, Hudson Taylor's gone native. That's actually what they said. And we need to bring him home. And they said, you need to come home, Hudson. Uh, you are uh, really lost the plot here. And he said, I'm not. They said, well, if you don't, we're going to disown you. He said, well, disown me. So they did. And it was the best thing that could have happened to him. Because he became the father of the China Inland Mission and he actually started recruiting all these people to join him. And he was the first one ever to recruit single women. He went out and he said, all these single women, uh, you know, they, they wanted to do things they were never allowed to do anything in the church. So he said, well, why come over to China? You can tell people about Jesus. At least you can do that. And, and he did. And he recruited all these people and he became the father of cross-cultural mission because he said, you need to learn the language, you need to dress in an appropriate way, you need to live with these people, that's going to reach them for Jesus. And he had, he, in his lifetime he recruited 800 new missionaries. He was, he's, um, it's said of him that he was personally responsible for the salvation of at least 30,000 Chinese people. He built a mission that became the foundation of the Chinese church today and hundreds of millions of people are in God's kingdom because of this one young man who understood what it was to live the kingdom and understood the difference between cultural Christianity and following Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today. Is what's the difference between cultural Christianity and truly following Jesus in the kingdom. So, what we're encountering today, I believe, is, is, is a, a struggle to, to define church and define what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, and so we've, we've tried to codify it a bit and, and control it and work it out so that we do it right. And now what happens often when people encounter the church or possibly encounter the kingdom, the first thing they're told is you have to believe. That's right, isn't it? They have to believe. If we meet unbelievers, then they need to believe. The problem is that we have our own form of mission societal perspective because often people are told, you need to believe this, 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 this and this. You actually need to believe that the whole Bible is, is the Word of God. You need to believe uh, in this particular interpretation of the Word of God. This is how we do church. So this is what you need to believe in and the reason we do that is because it's in the Bible and so you know, you'll tell them what it is. Here's the package. This is what you've got to believe. Now, if they say, all right, well, I, I do want to be uh, part of this so I'm going to believe, well, then they have to behave. They have to start behaving in the right way. They've got to stop swearing and they've got to stop doing this and they've got to stop doing that and, and you know, depending on where they are, you've got to actually start living like us and, and they've got to behave in a certain way and then when they behave in a certain way, they can belong. They can belong to the church. They can come here and they can be part of it and they can do what they're meant to do and believe what they're meant to believe and they're there. Whereas I believe what Jesus asked us to do was to grow his kingdom and to see these will comes on earth as it is in heaven. And how does that look? What should that look like? What happened when people first encountered Jesus who were genuinely looking? What happened when people encountered Jesus who had a lot of mess in their life? Particularly those who had a lot of mess in their life. Because Jesus went after those ones. The ones who had it all worked out, they didn't need a doctor, Jesus said, so I don't need to fix them. And they actually don't really want to know. But these ones... What happened? They were blessed. 
and they were blessed in unique ways. So the first thing that should happen when somebody encounters the kingdom of God in us or in the church or whatever should be that they are blessed. That they are blessed. If every follower of Jesus every morning prayed this prayer, Lord, I know you want me to bless somebody today. Help me to be sensitive enough to your spirit to know who that is. And then give me the courage to actually do what, what is necessary to bless them in the way that they need to be blessed. And, and, and Lord, help me to be willing to give up what is necessary for me to do that because any kingdom endeavour is going to cost you something. Sacrifice and following Jesus go hand in hand. Now, if every one of the believe, everyone in this church or everyone who was a follower of Jesus in Australia prayed that prayer every morning and went out and lived it, it would be revolutionary. Renowned novelist Charles Kingsley said, Make it a rule and pray to God to help you to keep it. Never, if possible, to lie down at night without being able to say, I have made one human being at least a little wiser, a little happier or a little better this day. The second thing that should happen in a true encounter with the kingdom of God is that people should feel that they belong. That they belong. When we uh, read Ephesians, Paul talks about a great mystery. I'm sure that many of you read Ephesians. And Paul does it this way. He says, I'm going to tell you a secret, I'm going to tell you a mystery, but I'm not going to tell you yet. First of all, I have to tell you, it's not my idea. Now, he's already you know, distancing himself from what he's going to say. So clearly, it is something pretty radical. He said, this is from God. This is not me. If it was my idea, you probably wouldn't accept it at all. But I want to make sure that you understand this is not my idea. This is actually an idea from God. This is something that God's kept hidden until now and now it's being revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, what is this absolutely outrageous, radical idea that he thinks everybody's going to reject if they think it comes from him? This is what it is. This is what it is. The Gentiles fellow, are all fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, 6. Here's the radical idea, everyone. Everyone belongs. Everyone belongs in the kingdom. What a radical idea. You know, you Jews thought it was only for you. Well, guess what? It's for everybody in the world. Jesus died for everybody and everybody has a place in the kingdom. Now, I'm not a universalist. I don't believe everybody's going to end up in eternity with Jesus because they have to take their place. But one of the greatest tragedies I believe we have to encounter when we get to the end of time is looking at all the empty seats in heaven that people didn't come and sit in that are there for them. Everybody in this world has had their sins dealt with. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, past, present and future. They just have to embrace that and go and say, I want to take my seat in the kingdom. What a great tragedy. Everybody belongs. Jenny and I were involved in the church plant when we were in Colorado. Uh, we were struggling with the traditional church we were involved in so we thought we'd go and find something a bit more radical and out there in the kingdom and so we um, got connected with this guy who was trying to do a church plan and he called it Renovate. So we called it Renovate. 
And it was pretty out there, you know, radical expression of church, a bit different, um, you know, loud, uh, and you know, had to wear your plugs and so, you know, some of the things that we were doing. It was, it was different. But in one year, we had 120 people, unchurched people, come to faith. Now, one time, this guy came in and every spare space that I could see on him was covered in writing and various pictures. And he had other things sticking out of him as well. So he was pretty noticeable. And, and he came in and he sat down and he was part of the deal and, and then, you know, Rusty, the guy who was leading this church plant, went up to him and said, hi, yeah, it's good to have you here. He said, oh yeah, just got out of jail. My mate told me we should come to renovate. I said, what's a renovate? Uh, well, yeah, so I'm here. You know, actually didn't say mate. You know, they say pal, buddy, buddy. That's it, buddy. Um, next week he turns up again. Rusty goes up and says, "Oh, it's really good to have you back." He says, "Yeah, don't know why I came back. Never been in the church before. Not sure why I came back, but somehow I feel I belong." Now, if somebody looks like that has come from that background, can come somewhere where they feel they have a place, then something's right. The kingdom is coming in that place for that person. But everybody who encounters the kingdom should have that sense of belonging. I belong, I belong. In that work we were doing in Notting Hill, we saw around about 200 young people come to Jesus um, in about 18, two, two years. And, and, and nearly every one of them said, I, I, I feel I've got a place here. I, I feel I belong. I had a sense of belonging. And that is such an important part of encountering the kingdom of God. Next, they should believe. But what should they believe? Should they believe in a whole lot of particular interpretations of God's word? Is it necessary for somebody to believe all of God's word and become a follower of Jesus? One of the people who became a follower of Jesus in Renovate, Rusty, I was mentoring Rusty and he said, oh, you know, I've had some pretty interesting conversations this week. I was talking to this guy, I said, you know, uh, he's telling me, well, people keep telling me to read the Bible, but they tell me to start in the middle. Why would you start reading a book in the middle? And, and he says, so Rusty had to explain to him, the Bible is, is like a whole library of books and it's like going and picking off the easiest to read book off the shelf. And, and so the easiest read book is sort of in the middle of the Bible. That's, you know, or a little bit, this, it's called in the New Testament. We, had, you know, we heard about another girl who said, um, why would I become a Christian? You Christians rewrite the Bible every year. What? Well, you call it a New Testament. So obviously it's new every year, so you must be rewriting it. So why would I do that? I mean, you know, but this person was a follower of Jesus and he, he was just trying to understand what it meant to read the Bible. You know, is it necessary for everybody to know everything before they become a believer? No. The only thing that we are required to do is introduce these people to Jesus. We don't need to convince them of everything. And so often we have debates and fights and discussions and, and, and apologetic uh, arguments with people trying to convince them of all the truths of the Bible rather than focusing on Jesus who really is the person of the kingdom who we're meant to introduce these people to. Now that doesn't mean you're not meant to have an apologetic. It doesn't mean you're not meant to actually have a, found, a foundation in God's word. They're all important. But, but what we want people to believe in is not us and not the church and not how we do things. We actually want them to believe in Jesus. 
You know, Jesus would ask this question constantly. How do I become part of this? I want to be part of this. I want to be part of your kingdom. What was his answer? It, always, it was always two things. Give up everything, follow me. Simple. Give up everything, follow me. Well, what does it mean to follow you? Love others. Love God and love others. It is quite simple. And that's the message of the kingdom. We want people to believe in Jesus. And then what do we want to see happen? Then what should happen is they should become, they should become all that Jesus has designed them to be. All that God has made them for, they should become. Now I've got a confession to make this morning. Probably good to come back to your old home church and make confessions. I am a serial advice giver. I actually am thinking of starting Advice Givers Anonymous, coming along and saying, I am an advice giver, I give advice every day, I shouldn't be doing that, but I, you know, I'm trying to get over it. What I found was, and God challenged me about this, was that um, I was trying to change these people and, and, beha- and behaviour modification was my, my, my model of doing the kingdom. And so, you know, I'd have these conversations with young people all the time. I'd say, well, I think you should do it. They'd come along and say, what should I do? I'd say, well, I think you should do this, this and this and then this and this and this and this. And there's a problem with that. What happens if I'm not there one day and they need to have an answer to a very serious issue? They'll probably go to their friends because most 90% of kids will go to their friends with a deep problem and nobody else will know anything about it but their friends and their friends are struggling with the same problems and they're not really going to have the right answers. So if I'm not around, that's going to be a problem. So I changed what I was doing. I keep trying to discipline myself to do this. When somebody came to me, a young person came to me and said, David, what should I do? I'd say, I don't know. Let's go and read the Bible. Why don't you go and read the Bible? I'll read the Bible. And why don't you pray about it? Talk to Jesus about it and I'll talk to Jesus about it and we'll get back together and we'll see what you discovered. And I'll see if I've got any idea what Jesus was saying too. Now, if I'm not around and they have an issue and we do that every time, what are they going to do? They're going to go to the Bible and they're going to pray. They're going to talk to Jesus about it. So, so what we want these people to do is become everything that Jesus wants them to be, not what we want them to be. Now one of the girls that was involved in that little church that we were reaching these kids was a, a heroin addict and I thought she needed her heroin addiction fixed and so I was working hard on that. Now one day <coughs> um, there was a real need identified in our youth community. And she had, had been scrounging money together. I, I don't even know whether it was to buy more heroin or whatever. And she took all the money she had and she didn't have enough really to live on and she gave it to this person to meet that need. And I'm thinking, she's got the kingdom principles sorted out in, in so many ways and I'm trying to fix this. You know, Jesus always had these conversations with his disciples. The disciples would come along and they see how he interacted with somebody and they'd say, that's wrong. You know, Jesus, you shouldn't do that. You actually got to fix this on. You know, you've got to fix this. You can know those conversations. What was wrong with it? You know, why did you do that? What are you sitting down talking to that woman for? How can you say her sins are forgiven? Do you know who she is? That person's washing your feet. Do you know who she is? He, Jesus is so unpredictable. How can we even start to guess what he wants to do in somebody's life? You know what I think? I think we have lost the trust in Jesus' power to transform a life. Do we really believe Jesus has the power, the capacity to transform a life? Do we believe that? If we believe that, why don't we let him do it instead of trying to do it for him? 
So really our job, I believe, in discipling people is just to help them to get closer to Jesus. It simplifies things so much. It makes it a whole lot more doable. If we just, every time we meet with somebody, say, let's look at Jesus, let's look at his life, let's let's see what he talked to us about. Here's something I'm struggling with. And I used to do that all the time with those young people. We'd get together on a Wednesday night and, and they'd bring all their, their, we had a Bible study and I, they'd bring all their, their unchurched friends but they weren't meant to because this was a time for the Christians and they'd bring them along because what I'd do is I'd be reading the newspaper through the week, something like this horrific thing that happened over in the Ukraine and I'd bring that to the table and I'd say, <clears throat> this just happened this week, what do you think Jesus thinks about this? And we'd wrestle with that. Or somebody would get really hurt with gossip and I'd say, what do you think the Bible says about gossip and what should we do about What do you think Jesus wants us to do about that? And they'd go to their friends and they'd say, we talked about gossip and you know, we, talk, we got this way of stopping it now. And, and um, they'd say, where'd you learn that? Oh, we did this Bible thing. Oh, can we come? And it grew from 15 people to 70 people in a year. And you know, like all extremes, one guy came along with a squash bag one night and he had a stolen off shotgun in it and I got him to leave it at the door with all the shoes and he took it when he went. So we were encountering this, but, but they felt they belonged and then what Jesus was doing is renovating their life in the way that he should renovate them. Fantastic name for a church, renovate. And that's what it means to become a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be part of his kingdom. That's what it means to bring the kingdom to the world. It's simply helping people to get closer to Jesus and getting out of the way so that Jesus could renovate a life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you love us and that you bless us with your kingdom and you call us to be part of your kingdom. Help us to live that. Help us to live in a way that blesses others. To live in a way and to create environments and space where people feel they belong uh, to help people to understand who you are and to believe in you and Lord to allow them to get closer to you so they can become all that you want them to be in Jesus name Amen